Open your Bibles, if you will, with me this morning to the passage which we have read, the 13th chapter of Proverbs. And our text is found in the 22nd verse of that 13th chapter of the book of Proverbs. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Our Father and our God, as we come now to thy holy word, we again ask that thy spirit will take the things of truth and apply them to our hearts and souls, that we might be enabled by thy grace to be faithful Christian men and women, honoring the Lord in our hearts and in our lives, bringing glory to thy name. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. As Bible Presbyterians, we believe in sound doctrine. We are a confessional church. All of our ministers believe and are true to their ordination vows. For we recognize and we delight in doctrinal messages, for we recognize that what a man believes determines how he acts, how he lives. The Westminster Confession of Faith sums up this matter very nicely by saying that truth is in order to goodness. Truth is in order to goodness. If we are careless in our doctrine, in what we believe, that carelessness will reflect itself in our practical spiritual lives that we live every day. Nowhere is this more evident, I believe, than in this new confession of the United Presbyterian Church, the Confession of 67. Uh, in that confession, this Presbyterian Church has rejected the doctrine of the inspiration of Holy Scripture. They have turned away and repudiated the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and his sinless life. And that repudiation of sound doctrine, then, is reflected in an acceptance of the new morality and of social revolution, of the uh, social gospel in, in place of the gospel of the grace of our God as it is in Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, we must not overlook the Bible's practical teaching and its application to our daily lives. I'd like to read for you this morning the introduction to the uh, book of Proverbs made by Matthew Henry, the great uh, Puritan commentator who has been a blessing to many Christian homes. And this is what Matthew Henry writes in his introduction to this book of uh, the Proverbs, which is just chucked full of practical uh, instruction for the people of God. He writes, David's Psalms, especially the latter ones, tend to make one think that religion is all rapture and consists in nothing but ecstasies and transports of devotion. And doubtless, there is a time for them, and if there is to be a heaven on earth, it is in them. But we have a life to live in the flesh. We live in the world, and into that we must now be taught to carry our religion, which is a rational thing and very serviceable to the government of human life. Our religion should tend just as much to make us discreet as to make us devout, just as much to make our face shine before men in a prudent, honest, useful behavior as to make our heart burn towards God in holy and pious 
affections. Now, it is this matter of practical Christianity, the testimony which we bear before men in an honest, useful behavior, making our faces shine before men that I want to uh, consider with you this morning. For it is, I fear, right at this point that the Christian church is failing her, mo her Lord most graphically. Now, I'm speaking of the true church of Jesus Christ. I'm speaking of the fundamental Bible-believing church, the separated church. Yea, we in the American Council of Christian churches, we are correct doctrinally. I believe that with all my heart, beloved, that we are correct doctrinally and the position that we have taken on the word of God is right and proper and sound. But do our lives back up this profession that we make with our lips? Do we really believe that sin and unbelief are horrible? Do we really believe that the coming of Jesus Christ is imminent at the very doors? Do we really love our children and want the very best for them in this life? Do we really love our nation and the great principles of uh, liberty and Christian morality? And do we wish to preserve those principles for our grandchildren? Oh, beloved, I believe that if we did, we would live our lives on a much higher plane than we are presently living them. These are days when the ancient landmarks are being removed. We are neglecting the glorious heritage as Christians and as Americans that our fathers have given us, and consequently, our children, our churches, and our country is slipping into dangerous attitudes of behavior. There are refreshing exceptions, of course, to this general trend. A few days ago, for instance, the great crowd at Connie Mack Stadium watching a Phillies ball game was stunned, electrified, and then thrilled in quick succession at the action of a little girl. As a great torrential rainstorm began to pepper down on that field and the fans and players alike ran for cover, the crowd was electrified as a little 12-year-old Diane DiMarco raced out of the right field stands and sloshed her way over to the flagpole in center field and there calmly began to pull down the flag. She carefully folded the flag up and tucked it under her arms and ran, made a mad dash to the Phillies dugout where she gave it to first baseman Bill White. Afterwards, when asked, why did she do this? She simply stated, well, I thought it was a shame that the flag should get all wet like that. A few days later, I picked up the Philadelphia paper and I saw this picture of Cheryl DiMarco in the paper and it shows her in her Christian school uh, looking at a rather satirical sign which reads, in the event of atomic attack, all rules against praying in this school are indefinitely suspended. Did you see that? Now, I don't know whether Diane and Cheryl DeMarco are related or not, but I do know this, beloved, that somewhere along the line, these two girls have been given the heritage of American citizenship and the heritage of Christian faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They have put into practical application, they have been taught to, to love and to appreciate the heritage of prayer and patriotism. Now our text states that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Let's consider some of the practical aspects of that text this morning. What is the inheritance 
that this good man leaves to his children's children? Well, first of all, there is what I would call his personal inheritance. His personal inheritance. In the 19th chapter of Proverbs, the 14th verse, as we consider this personal inheritance, we have this statement. House and riches are the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, actually, that could just as well be rendered in the Hebrew. House and riches, the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife are, it should be are instead of is, from the Lord. In other words, all of these things, house, riches, a prudent wife, are all from the Lord. Now, beloved, this gives to us, first of all, in this personal aspect of a man's inheritance, the right of property. Houses and lands are from the Lord. In another place in the Word of God, we read, it is the Lord that giveth thee power to make wealth. And so the Word of God, beloved, establishes as a divine right the right of personal, private property. This is capitalism, if you believe. Good old-fashioned money and profit that, uh, and land, uh, the ownership of land that we have enjoyed in this free land for these many years. Now, I would say, dear friends, that this, this, these scriptures deal a death blow to this idea that is so prevalent in our society and in the, uh, anal, in the halls of government uh, about the inheritance, you know. And so every state and our federal government is uh, uh, heaping these inheritance taxes upon the people. Somehow they have the idea it's wrong for a man to work hard, to save his money, to acquire some property and some wealth, and then to leave it to his children. That he ought to leave that, or the bulk of it at least, to the government. No, dear friend, the word of God says that a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. And a part of this inheritance is houses and lands, property. In the third chapter of Proverbs, a familiar uh, verse of scripture, I'm sure, to, uh, to those of you in this church, uh, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, we read, Honor the Lord with thy substance. There again is capital, property. And with the first fruits of all thine increase. There's the profit motive. The first fruits, thine increase. You are to put your capital to work, or you're to work, you're to make a profit, you're to increase with it. But the word of God says, honor the Lord with it. And then shall thy barns break, uh, uh, thy barns shall be filled, and thy presses shall break forth with, with new, new wine. Now, dear friends, these scriptures deal a death blow to that Marxian idea of an inheritance tax and the graduated income tax, which has become uh, so grievous to us. We have become so used to this idea of the welfare state where the government is to take care of us from the womb to the tomb and forget that the word of God says, if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith. He is worse than an infidel. No, Proverbs 14, 22 says, a good man leaveth an inheritance. He's to acquire something and leave it to his children, not to spend it all on his own pleasures and his own lust, but to lay up by frugality and thrift and careful planning to lay up some substance for his children and for their children. But there are two more aspects of this personal inheritance that are even more important than the material wealth that we have in property. In Proverbs chapter 22, we have another statement of the word of God found in verse 1. 
A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. So I have chosen to select this out as the second aspect of a good man's personal inheritance and remind you that we should leave a good name to our children. We should be more diligent to acquire and keep a good name than we are to acquire and lay up a great amount of wealth. Now, some acquire a great amount of wealth and have little regard for the reputation that they make in doing it. I'm sure that many prominent names in our uh, nation, in our history, uh, comes to mind. I would hate to be elected to the highest office in this land as the President of the United States and be known as a very wealthy man, realizing that my father had made all that wealth in the, book in the uh, acquiring of uh, Scotch whiskey and in the damning of men's souls and bodies through the liquor traffic, as some have uh, acquired it. Some care not for the way in which they gain money. Some work and struggle and scheme, and by crooked devices, by the breaking of the law, acquire great wealth. But in doing so, they leave their children a heritage of a bad name, a poor reputation. I remember when I was in high school in Glendale, California, I think it was my junior year. An article came out in the papers one day, the Glendale paper, a very large story, but it even appeared in the Los Angeles paper. And one of the boys in that junior class, parents were arrested for uh, taking bets on the horses. They were so concerned with making money. They were so concerned that their boy had the things of this life but I want to tell you, beloved, when that matter hit the newspaper and that boy who was a fine, clean boy, his life was changed. He was crushed as an individual. Yes, his parents were concerned about laying up great wealth, making a lot of money, but in doing so, they ruined their reputation and a scar was left on that young boy. A good name, the word of God, is rather to be chosen than great riches. Oh, beloved, great riches bring great cares with them, but a good name redounds to the glory of God and gives us a greater opportunity for doing good. If we, if we acquire great riches, if we possess great riches, it's true that we may help the bodily needs of others. And if you have any of this world's good, if the Lord has blessed and prospered you with wealth, you be sure to read the book of Proverbs and find what God says to you there, to be merciful to the poor, to be benevolent and charitable. But, beloved, the acquiring of a good name, the acquiring of a good testimony for Jesus Christ will enable you to do far more for this old world. It will enable you to give a good witness and to lead men and, lead men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. I remember my Sunday school teacher when I was saved in our Glendale church some years ago uh, was a blessed man of God. He was up in his 70s at that time. And he was the, uh, at one time, had been the city engineer, the um, uh, harbor engineer for the city of Los Angeles. Had a very responsible position. And uh, uh, ever so often he would come to the Sunday school lesson and he always had a smile on his face. He always had a, a blessed testimony for our Lord. Well, in fact, I'm sure some of you know him. He came to our synods for many years, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, J. Wyman Ludlow. But often he would come to Sunday school and he'd just be radiant as he would tell us of the opportunity the Lord gave him to lead another soul to Jesus Christ, some girl that worked in the office, 
uh, and as he gave his testimony, as he lived his life for Christ before them week by week in that office, uh, and often be bearing the brunt of ridicule, you know, and be, oh, well, he's an old fogey, you know. But then in the providences of God, when trouble would come into lives, when heartbreak and disappointment would come into the younger lives, and they would naturally then turn to this man who had given a faithful witness for Christ and showed in his everyday life that he believed with his heart what he professed with his lips. And time and time again, the Lord gave that man the opportunity to lead some seeking soul to Jesus Christ. Oh, dear friend, a good name, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. By your good reputation, your good name, you'll be enabled to lead souls to Jesus Christ. So this is a part of the good man's inheritance that he leaves to his children and their children, a good name. But this verse also tells us something else. It says that loving favor is to be chosen rather than silver and gold. So there's a third aspect of a man's personal heritage, and that's what I have chosen to call a disposition to love. Loving favor. Think of it, parents. This is the word of God. Loving favor is rather to be chosen than silver and gold. Oh, how little real love there is today, even among Christians, even among those who call themselves Bible-believing Christians, I say, how, how little real love there is manifested in the lives of the families and the children. The Apostle Paul told us that one of the characteristics of these last days would be that men would be without natural affection, disobedient to parents, without that natural affection. And oh, how we see that graphically be portrayed in our society today. Pick up the daily newspaper and there hardly goes a day goes by in which you don't see some terrible crime committed against some child, against some little one, where the mother goes off on a drunken spree and leaves the little ones to perish in that house with no care. But what about us as Christians? Are we giving that disposition to love to our children? Loving favor? All too often, Christian parents have failed in this regard, I think, by indulging their child's bad disposition and thinking that that's love. We read in our scripture this morning, if you will recall, that last verse of that scripture, that the next to last verse, he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him when it is necessary. How about you modern moms and dads? Are you putting into practice that word from the living God? Oh, that's old-fashioned, you say. I love my child too much to spank him. I've had parents tell me that, and I want to tell you I watch those children to grow up to be monsters. You call that love? That's not love. That's pride in your own heart. The word of God says he that hateth his son refuses to, to spank him, to chasten him when he needs it. We have a philosophy in our home, and often, I must confess, we fail in it, and when we do, we reap the rewards of that failure, but the philosophy we've tried to follow is speak and then spank. Speak and then spank. I think the parent is required by the word of God to demand immediate obedience of his children, and if you parents don't teach your children obedience, where are they going to learn it? I was in a home just this past week invited to a neighbor's house there to, uh, to watch the football game. I don't have television myself. We don't get to see that too often. And 
Uh, we had nothing to do. It was late at night, so 9.30 it started. In fact, our children were long ago in bed. And I went down, and one of my son's little playmates uh, was there, and a nice, friendly, happy boy in, a, in some ways. Uh, but the father told him, now, you go to bed. And that didn't mean a thing. Now, you go to bed. And that went on, dear friends, for at least in half an hour. Now it's time for you to go to bed, son. And finally, didn't move out of his chair. The boy would go out of the room and come back in and set himself over by the TV and do all sorts of things to get attraction. You go to bed. If he said it once, he said it 15 times, and I do not exaggerate. And finally, the last recourse that this father, uh, who incidentally professes to be an evangelical Christian, a member of an evangelical church in town, his last recourse was, uh, Mary... He wanted mom to come in and make that child obey. The child never did obey. Loving favor. Loving favor. And you cannot show loving favor to your child and you cannot give that spirit of love and implant it within that child's heart unless you obey the word of God which says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him when it's necessary, <laughs> diligently, I fear that so often we are in the place of Eli. You recall Eli in the, in the Old Testament uh, had to reap the reward of this kind of activity and his sons grew up to be wicked priests and the word of God in 1 Samuel, the third chapter, the 13th verse tells us why. Because he restrained them not. He restrained them not. But a good man leaveth this inheritance, this personal inheritance to his children. And what an advantage it is to be reared in an atmosphere of love and affection with, mixed with the proper discipline, dear friend. In the first place, a child, other things being equal, a child reared in that kind of a home will be uh, much healthier. For we read in the 17th chapter here, the 22nd verse, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. And so that child is, who is given loving favor will have a merry heart and he'll be healthier. He'll be healthier, everything else considered. The fourth chapter of Proverbs tells us the same thing, that he that loves the word of God, that the word of God becomes health to all of our flesh. The book of Proverbs in the 15th chapter tells us that the child will become actually more popular, I believe. In the 15th chapter, the 13th verse, we read, A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance but by sorrow of heart the spirit is broken. Think of it. A merry heart, loving favor in the heart, maketh a cheerful countenance. A cheerful countenance. And so that child with the sunny disposition attracts and wins friends and is, has an influence for Jesus Christ. Does your child radiate a cheerful countenance? Or is he long in the face? long in the face because he has not received this inheritance from the good man of Proverbs. And the 15th verse speaks to me and tells me that that child, uh, given that personal inheritance, will be a more contented child. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Oh, dear friend, when the love of Jesus Christ is implanted in the hearts of the children, when you as parents live your lives before your children, lives of faith and grace, 
that child becomes a merry child, a, a cheerful heart, and he has a continual feast. He's contented with the things of the Lord. And what a, what a day you and I live in when children with young people are so restless, they're so, they're so discontent with the things that they have. They want more of this, they want more of that, and we see all of these things coming upon us simply because children have not learned to be content with such things as they have. And this is a part of the inheritance that you're to leave to your children, beloved. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. The good man of our text will daily at the family altar feed the young spirits of his children with the choice dainties of God's word which will nourish and strengthen them and enable them to live lives each day for the glory of Almighty God and it will result in a sunny disposition and loving favor. This is the good man's personal heritage. Property, a good name, and loving favor. But there's a second thing that I would like to consider that a good man leaves in his heritage to his children and his children's children. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. And that is his patriotic heritage. The good man's patriotic heritage. Oh, how patriotism, good old-fashioned patriotism, is maligned in our society today. A man who places the national honor above the sovereign and the sovereignty of his nation above the uh, welfare of the United Nations is uh, somehow considered to be suffering from mental illness or he's not fit for world citizenship or something of that kind. Well, I want to tell you, dear friend, this morning, I may be a fugitive from a mental hospital, but how I thrill to the great events that brought into, into being our great republic, the struggle for independence, the spirit of 76, the battles of Concord and Bunker Hill, that great charter of our liberty, the Declaration of Independence. Oh, does not your heart thrill when you go back and recall these great things? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of course, historians tell us originally that expression was life, liberty, and property, but property was changed, you see, to give it a little broader concept, the pursuit of happiness. As things have developed, I kind of wish they'd left it property myself. Maybe there wouldn't be so much fuzzy thinking in these areas of our property rights today. But then that last sentence of that declaration, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on, on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Oh, listen to me, beloved. Liberty, freedom, was more important to these men to, than their property or their lives. And how strange these words sound in our ears today, in today's climate of collectivistic philosophy and the welfare state. And what could we say of our sacred honor? What's happened to our sacred honor as Americans today, as a nation? When we tremble and fawn at every petty dictator that comes along, we let Castro steal millions and millions of dollars of American property down there and, and put communism, the yoke of communism on those people and do nothing about it. Our sacred honor. Oh, how things have changed, haven't they? I wonder how many of our people have ever heard or, or thought much of Ethan Allen. I know that some of you ladies who collect early American furniture probably are familiar with the name Ethan Allen, but do you, really, do you really know anything about Ethan Allen? Here was a man, a rough frontiersman who loved liberty 
and was willing to strike a blow for freedom regardless of the odds. And he, with 60 or 70 of his Green River boys, made a surprise attack on the, on the well-fortified British garrison at Ticonderoga. And they surprised this garrison and they overran it and they took it capture. And they captured a great supply of ammunition and, and artillery, which later saved the day for General Washington. But this, this British commander, who was so overwhelmed and, and simply mortified, uh, demanded of, of Ethan Allen, by whose authority do you do this, this terrible thing? And you know what Ethan Allen's reply was? In the name of Jehovah of hosts and the Continental Congress. Oh, I like that. Our Supreme Court tells us today that we're living in a pluralistic society and we can't call on the name of Jehovah of hosts. But that wasn't uh, Ethan Allen's testimony, not at all. From a very early age, I've always thrilled to the story, the testimony of Nathan Hale, that great patriot. I wonder, do our young people even know about Nathan Hale? I understand that in 11, 11 of the most recently published history books, for, that are being used in our high schools to teach U.S. history that only one of them even mentions Nathan Hale. Only two out of, the li out of 45, out of 45 history books, only two mention Patrick Henry. And none of them mention John Paul Jones, so there's no point of talking about John Paul Jones this morning because I'm sure our young people probably don't, don't know about him at all. But Nathan Hale, this young captain in Washington's army who was a school teacher and was a, a, a Christian gentleman, 21 years of age, he was engaged to a lovely Christian girl, and the call went out for a volunteer for a dangerous spy mission. And Nathan Hale stepped forward and he went behind the enemy lines on that dangerous mission and he was captured. And he was brought before, ready to be executed, and he was asked if he had any last words to say. And oh, how we thrill and how we rejoice in that heritage that Nathan Hale has given to us. I only regret that I have but one life to give to my country. Oh, beloved, the heritage of patriotism that we have as Americans. Do you young people know what that means? I only regret I have but one life to give for my country. No, we're seeing young people today out there burning their draft cards. And when I was up in New York last April in this a protest against this uh, uh, Vietnam situation and I heard that crowd of communists and fellow travelers marching down the street hell no we won't go hell no we won't go that's the spirit that's living in the hearts of many of our young people today they don't know anything about Nathan Hale they've forgotten the heritage that God has given us in this great land of liberty and freedom oh Christian father Christian mother are you given this heritage of patriotism to your children to your boys, are your boys ready to go out and serve their country if it should call, if it should call them? Oh, you say, you're mixing in politics now, Pastor. Well, do you know that in the Revolutionary War that one of King George's colonial devotees wrote back to the king and he said, I fix all the blame of these extraordinary proceedings on the Presbyterians. Horace Walpole remarked in the Parliament, Cousin America has run off with the Presbyterian parson. Why did they say that? Because Presbyterian preachers in those days, beloved, were preaching from the Word of God the great principles of individual liberty and responsibility before God. And men were born again and they were unafraid to die and give their life for a noble cause. But oh, how that day seems to have gone for us 
You remember we had this great meeting over at the Witherspoon, Mon Witherspoon Monument and our pastor gave us many of these things, but what a blessing it's been to me to read again the testimony of John Witherspoon, who was the only minister of the gospel to sign the Declaration of Independence, although nine of his students, uh, who were his students when he was president of Princeton uh, College, were also uh, signers of the Declaration. Yet in that deliberation of the, of the Declaration of Independence, when the whole body seemed to waver and hesitate and, and, and they were wondering, the Continental Congress was wondering, and, and they were very fearful, it was John Witherspoon, the minister of the gospel, this Presbyterian preacher who stood up and gave that memorable speech, there is a tide in the affairs of men, we perceive it now before us. To hesitate is to consent to our own slavery. That noble instrument should be subscribed this very morning by every pen in this house, though these gray hairs soon descend to the sepulcher. I would infinitely rather that they descend thither by the hand of the executioner than to desert at this crisis the sacred cause of my country. Oh, it is this spirit that is needed today, dear friend, if our nation is to be delivered in its present crisis. And this is not preaching politics. This is raising up the standards of righteousness and liberty that we have in God's word and applying them to our national life. On another occasion, John Witherspoon said this, there is not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty preserved entire. Now, dear friend, this is the issue that we are facing today. How long will, be we, will we be free to preach this blessed gospel of Jesus Christ? How long will we be free to proclaim the gospel from this pulpit? And if our civil liberty is lost, our religious liberty will likewise be lost. Oh, we need to earnestly beseech God to give us more ministers like John Witherspoon, Oh, God, give us men. A time like this demands strong minds, great hearts, true faith, ready hands, men whom the lusts of office cannot kill, men whom the spoils of office cannot buy, men who possess opinions and a will, men who have honor, men who will not lie, men who can stand before a demagogue and damn his treacheries and his flatteries without winking, Tall men, sun-crowned, who live above the fog in public duty and private thinking. For while the rabble with their thumb-worn creeds, their large professions and their little deeds, mingle in selfish strife, lo, freedom weeps, wrong rules the land, and waiting justice sleeps. Oh God, give us men, give us men. Would to God that the Spirit of God would speak to the hearts of some of you young men here today and call you out of your indifference and your carelessness and your testimony for Christ and put a purpose in your heart to be a servant of the living God and to declare this gospel and to stand in this battle for liberty and for freedom. A good man leaveth a patriotic inheritance to his children's children. But then finally there's Another aspect that we want to consider this morning, the good man of our text leaves a perpetual or a spiritual heritage to his children's children, and this, of course, is most important of all. 
And this is our biggest failure as Christian parents, I'm afraid, this morning, dear friend. It's that failure in training our children for Jesus Christ in the home, and most certainly we've failed and been derelict in allowing them to go to these godless schools and Christ-denying colleges, and we've seen many of them lost to the cause of our Lord Jesus. Oh, how does the truly good man then leave to his children this spiritual heritage? Well, in the first place, the good man of our text, I believe, gives his children a love for the word of God. He reads a portion of God's holy word daily at the family altar. He explains it to his children, and then he lives before them what is given in the word itself. He teaches then his children to read a portion of the word of God for himself daily as soon as he is able to read for himself. He lives a life of blessedness before that child. He walks, as David say, Oh, how blessed is the man that walketh in the law of the Lord. And so the good man of our text, dear friend, I believe, walks before his children and lives a Christian life of blessedness and sweetness before his children. He leaveth them an inheritance. You remember David's testimony, Oh, how I rejoice at thy law as one that findeth great spoil. Father, mother, listen to me this morning. Is that your testimony concerning the book of God? Do you just delight at the word of God? Do you rejoice at God's holy word as one that findeth great spoil? Oh, I know how you dads and moms would act if you went down to the A&P here and, and won the $1,000 bingo or drove into one of these gas stations and got $2,500. Oh, you come coming, hey, wife, hey, wife, look, $2,500. You'd get busy on the phone. You'd run next door to the neighbors. Look, I got $25, $2,500 in the contest, $2,500, great spoil. Oh, you'd rejoice at it, wouldn't you? David said, oh, how I rejoice in thy law as one that findeth great spoil. Is that your attitude concerning the word of God, dear friend? Is that the attitude that your son and your daughter growing up in your home reads in your life today? Mom and dad really believe that book. Mom and dad not only read it and teach me to read it, but they really believe it and they live it. It permeates their life. Christian boy, eight years of age, was ill of the malady that was finally to take his life, and he was asked by his mother if he were afraid to die. No, I wish to die if it be God's will, he answered. That sweet word, asleep in Jesus, makes me happy when I think of the grave. Is that the testimony your little eight-year-old? or 18-year-old has mother, dad? Is that the testimony? Is that the inheritance that you have given to your children as they grow up? And it's the Lord's will that they die. Oh, that word asleep in Jesus makes me glad when I think of the grave. Are you teaching this faith to your children? Do they have this assurance of eternal life? In the second place, the good man gives to his children the example of daily believing prayer. He demonstrates daily that he is trusting the living God for all his needs, not Washington, D.C. and the federal government. 
Oh, we have become so fat and prosperous in America today, beloved, that it hardly seems necessary to ask God for our daily bread anymore. Or if we do pray, our prayers have become lifeless and heartless and cold and indifferent, just a mere perfunctory form that we go through so often. I think it was John Bunyan that said it's better to, to have no words and heart than to have words and no heart in your prayers. Oh, we need to teach our children the joy that comes in daily fellowship and communion with the living God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, his Son. The good man of our text gives the sense of faithfulness to the Lord's house, to his children. He doesn't send them to Sunday school. He brings them to Sunday school. Were you in Sunday school with your children this morning, Mom and Dad? Grandpa, Grandma? He brings them together in the evening service in this evening. And when possible, he has them in the Lord's house on Wednesday night. Oh, I know how many parents there are that say, oh, well, the services last too long, you know, and Johnny's got to get up and go to school in the morning. And we just can't keep him out that late. Well, I'd rather have Johnny go with a lot of little, without a little sleep myself and be assured that I was fulfilling my obligation before Almighty God and that one day my child would be in heaven in the presence of Jesus Christ. If you were really concerned about his sleep, you'd, bring him home, you'd get him home after school and give him a couple hours nap if that were the only thing that was keeping you. Know how many of us are here Wednesday night and Sunday night with our children that they might hear the word of God. You know salvation is of the Lord. Do you know that? You know it's only through the preaching and the reading of the word of God that that little one comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and often it's an accumulative thing. It's not just a once a week affair. Now the good man, beloved, keeps his children in the house of the Lord at every opportunity and in the spirit of prayer and dependence upon the Lord looks to him to work. And then finally, because the word of God has been sown in the child's heart and trusting God to work, the good man of our text, I believe, will at a very early age lead that boy and that girl to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He won't let the pastor do it or the Sunday school teacher do it. He'll want to do that himself. You know, our Lord Jesus, in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, said, Suffer, little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. Have you ever wondered why Jesus Christ said, Forbid them not? Why does Jesus say, Forbid the children not from coming to me? You know why I think he said it? I think you have to hinder a child from coming to Jesus Christ. I think you actually literally have to put something in the way to keep a child from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard a little boy or a little girl turn up his nose and scoff at the Bible stories and the gospel songs? Oh, no, I don't believe that. Oh, you'll hear teenagers doing that. And you'll hear adults doing that. But I have never to this day heard a little child when they've heard the glorious, blessed news of Jesus and his love turn up his nose and scoff. Never. It seems that God has put something in that child, in the nature of a child, that is just naturally responsive and receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly when that gospel is lived out every day in the lives of his mom and dad. Oh, children love to hear the gospel. They love to hear the songs and to sing the songs of Jesus' love. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 